Today in this episode of Will Work for Purpose, I'm joined by Michael Jones, who is a Christian apologist and a YouTuber running the page Inspiring Philosophy. Uh, they've amassed over somewhere around 150,000 subscribers, and uh, his goal with this channel is to create a video response to every objection to Christianity. Uh, throughout this conversation, we talk about arguments for God, the role religion plays in mental health and mental life, and some of the ways you could start to address the questions surrounding God's existence. We also talk about propaganda and some other random topics sp sprinkled in. So I, I hope you enjoy, and without further ado, here is the ninth installment of the Will Work for Purpose podcast. So you're a um, you're like a Christian apologist and a YouTuber and you do a lot of debates and things like that. Uh, how did you kind of get started doing doing that? You know, how did you become a? Did you were you initially like I want to be an apologist? I want to be a YouTuber? I want to do all this? You know, I want to be you know like what None were your what, what were your goals initially? My goals initially were that I kept getting on I kept getting in Facebook debates and before that MySpace debates. So tells you how old I am. And I was sick and tired of repeating myself. So I thought, you know what, I'll make a couple videos. I'll just put them on YouTube. I'll make them public, whatever. Maybe someone else could find them useful. And then if I get in more debates, I want to repeat myself. I could just show them the video and problem solved. So I did that. And uh, then my videos started to get popular more than I expected. People asked me to do more. I realized I deal with more objections. So I kept doing more. Uh, and then it just sort of started snowballing. So yeah, this was never my intent to get to where I am. It just sort of happened. And were you studying anything in the similar, in this vein? Like, were you studying, you know, philosophy of religion, science, things like that? Were you doing any of that like prior no. to doing videos or? Well, I am now I'm currently mm -hmm. in a, a graduate program for philosophy. So that's going great. Mm -hmm. Uh, but no, at the time I just got out of school for video editing. So that's why I was making videos because I knew how to video edit. And so I use Adobe Premiere and After Effects and I have a little experience with uh, Cinema 4D, but I don't really use that as much. Okay, yeah. So I, I wondered because I've seen some things like where you share, uh, you know, your videos are super uh, like in-depth and they like have a lot of it, like um, there's just a lot, go you know, a lot going on with them. Like I, when I saw that, I'm like, I'd, you know, because I, I've not, trained in video editing and I tried to do something similar to that um, because I, you know, I get a lot of uh, arguments and debates or whatever, you know, like I talk with a lot of people and, uh, and so I was kind of trying to do something similar and uh, you know, I'd never had any video editing. So, you know, you go through our video editing experience. So like you open up the tutorials and try and do it, you know, by, by site or whatever, like teach yourself and there was, I mean, it was just so, so intensely complicated. And I think I remember seeing one of your uh, Facebook po uh, like posts on your page or whatever, and you took a screenshot of one of your videos and it had like, uh, 
what do you call it? The timeline was like loaded with just a million different um, like uh, assets and quotes and things like that. Um, when you started off like doing the uh, doing the videos and things like that, um, were you planning to make them as in depth as you kind of are now making them or were you kind of like, were they just more um, like, I just want to convey this idea in a way that I can just share it with people and uh, you know, I don't have to keep repeating myself kind of thing. Kind of, but I knew I had to make them like interesting. Like, I couldn't just mm -hmm. make like a slideshow that would, you know, mm -hmm. you know, no one's going to want to watch that. And so, you know, there was also kind of a little bit like, you know, I hope at least some people watch them. My goal was to get, you know, like a thousand subscribers one day. So, you know, I exceeded that within the first two years. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it, that was, I knew I had to make them somewhat interesting and I knew a little bit about story structure. Uh, I know how to like, um, one thing I tell people is you got to know your audience. You got to know how to pique their interest. So like when I did my Irreducible Mind series, uh, people said I should have put part two before part one. And I said, well, no, uh, because that has a lot of definitions in it. That's just laying groundwork. People want something that's going to catch their interest first. So part one has a lot of interesting data that's going to draw people in. Then when I got them drawn in, I go to part two, I start laying out definitions. I start laying out more, uh, more complex things, especially in part three. So you got to know how to sort of make these videos interesting. And I, I was able to focus on that a little bit as well. Mm. And what was the point where you're like, uh, okay, I guess this is, this is bigger than I thought. You know, this is kind of like, I'm becoming this thing, you know, like, was there ever a moment where you're like, uh, well, now I'm a YouTuber and I'm an apologist, you know, like, was there ever a moment where that just, you made that realization or was it just sort of like a gradual, uh, what do you say, like becoming or something like that? Well, a little bit of both. It was more gradual. I mean, it was just sort of like, wow, I have, you know, over 30,000 subscribers now. That's insane. Now I have 156,000. So, but I was, people were asking me to reveal my face and my name. And I was like, I don't want to do that. And eventually it just sort of accidentally happened. Like someone like posted that I was going to be in a debate and they posted my full name. And I'm like, great. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was unfortunate. Uh, so, and then some atheists got a hold of my personal Facebook page and started posting it on, on, uh, channels and walls and I said well you know I'm just gonna own it so they can't use that against me so I just went public at that point mm -hmm. uh, and so then it, I talked to some people at my church in Illinois at the time and uh, they one of the marketing guys there he wasn't a marketing guy he he was a who was a marketing guy for the church he was previous marketing guy but he was now working for the church as sort of like a uh, a consultant type role to sort of like help with like uh, growing in size kind of thing and uh he said, you know, I talked to him about, you know, my channel and I was like, do you think everything I could do this full time? And he said, at first he was like, I don't think so. And then I started telling him more about it. And he's like, you know, it could work. Here's what you got to do though. And I was really bad because I'm really bad at marketing, but I slowly tried to build up more of an audience and uh, financial backers and eventually got to the point where I could do it. So it was a gradual thing. Mm -hmm. And like uh, in terms of the face reveal, were, were there any benefits that you were thinking of, of remaining anonymous? Like, were you like, I don't want to attach my face to it because of all sorts of other reasons? Or was it kind of just uh, like, I guess, what was the sort of mentality behind that anonymity? I mean, it just felt safe. I didn't really like the idea of going public because uh, people are, you know, horrible on the internet. I mean, just think of some of my critics. Uh, I mean, I've blocked some of them because I just don't want to deal with the nonsense. Mm. Uh, and you know, you just get to the point where you're like, do I really want to deal with this? Mm. Um, so, you know, a lot of it was just like, I want to be left alone kind of thing. So that was kind of it.
I, I, again, I didn't really want to be famous. I don't want to be famous now, uh, but it's, I'm still growing because I feel like it's something, it's something that needs to be done. But, mm. you know, it, this was never my goal. Mm. It, when um, you kind of talked about how you have like these critics and things like that, like what kind of, I, I can only imagine because um, the like religious point of view is something that's like, I guess maybe on the decline or at least like in like, especially in like corporate settings or in university settings. Um, and so like, I imagine there's a bunch of pushback and criticism you get because I, I mean, I get it in my personal life and even online. So what, 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 I guess, uh, what kept you going? Because I assume that the hate was probably there from the beginning, like, or, you know, that there were critics, I guess, or people who are either just rude or they didn't really listen to you seriously or, you know, things like that. Did that ever discourage you or how did you kind of persist through that? Of course. I mean, that's always there. I remember one time I almost deleted my channel within like the first year. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it was because like a really big YouTuber did like a video response to one of mine. And I was mm. just like, I couldn't deal with it at the time, but no, I didn't. Um, I mean, eventually you just get thicker skin over time. And then uh, I, ironically, I remember watching a video from Monica Lewinsky of all people who is now like an advocate against bullying. And she does all this wonderful work in that. And she was talking about how she is bullied online, like crazy. And she gave a lot of great pointers. And she said, one point she said, if someone is you know, trolling you, going after, just block them. You don't, have, you don't owe them anything. You're not blocking their free speech. You're just saying, I don't want to talk to you. It's the same thing on shutting the door on someone, on like, you know, a Jehovah Witness at, you, at your front door. You don't want to talk to them. And so I took her advice. And if somebody is being a jerk, is trying to, I just block. There's no reason to try to engage with these people. Uh, and so I try to stick to more mature conversations. And if someone's acting like a, a child, I just get rid of them. I can think of a couple of examples where I just don't, I just ignore them now because they're children and they're just out for attention. Mm, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think I saw that. Did she give a TED talk or something like that? Is that, because uh, I think I saw uh, Monica Lewinsky did a TED talk and it was something similar to what you're talking about there. About, um, maybe a while ago, but I don't, I, I, I specifically saw her being interviewed, I think by John Oliver, maybe. Oh, I don't know, okay. it was a while ago. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause there's another person that was an idea that I, um, I never previously thought of just blocking people, you know, um, cause, because of what happens when someone gets blocked by like, let's say someone big blocks someone else that's big and like they immediately like screen cap it and, you know, try to, uh, you know, get a bunch of like, um, I guess hype behind it or whatever. And, yeah. uh, it wasn't until there was another guy, uh, his name is, uh, Michael Malice. And, uh, he wrote, uh, he was just on a couple of podcasts recently and he wrote a book, something about like, uh, one of the titles is the unauthorized official retelling of Kim Jong Il's life or something like that. I think it's like a satire piece, but he talked about that too. It's sort of like, imagine you're going to a party, um, like you don't just let anyone in that party, at least if it's in your own home, you know, like you have a specific guest list, you know, and it's like, you kind of have to treat social media and like the internet sort of like that, you know, like, because the words that are uttered there in some sense, like have the similar effect on you as if they were uttered to you face to face, except the pers person saying them doesn't like, there's no, like, you know, since there's a screen in between or there's a level of ambiguity, they sort of like take liberties with that, you know, and they can be much more harsh than they might be in real life. 
Which is, yeah, uh, exactly. You know, some of these people are just, it's, it's no use trying to talk to them sometimes. And that actually kind of brings up another question because I've like, I watched a lot of your uh, debates and sometimes when I'm listening to them, uh, I, it's almost like the, in some, like, and I try to like be as unbiased as I possibly can because like I'm a Christian too, you know? And so like, I try to remove myself from that and just sort of, you know, who's making good points and things like that. And like, sometimes uh, it's like your debate opponent is either talking past you or like just totally disregarding, you know, a lot of what you're saying, or like they're trying to put on some like slam poetry expedition and you're bringing up studies and, you know, stuff like that. And like, um, does that like, and I've, I've heard some people questioning the value of debate and, um, and I've talked with, uh, James, uh, Coons, the guy who runs modern day debate. I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago and uh, he, you know, he obviously values debate highly because that's like what he does, you know, he moderates debates, like lots of them, you know. And, uh, but I'm curious to get sort of your perspective as, a, as someone who frequently debates, you know, like uh, how do you sort of like, how do you, I guess, justify going into a debate where you may already know that the person you're talking to is not going to listen to anything you're going to present to them? Well, there's a couple things you got to think about debates. Is one is there's a there's a political element there. Okay, I'm not going to debate a troll that just is bothering me online and is trying to tempt mm -hmm. me into debate. I'm not going to debate someone who's got like a channel and they got three thousand subscribers and they're incredibly rude and they're just insulting me because I'm not going to benefit from there. My audience is not going to benefit from that. Now, let's say the amazing the amazing atheist wanted to debate me. Okay, he's a troll. He's rude. But my audience is going to greatly benefit from that. He's got a much larger audience than that. So there's a level of trollness based on popularity that I, you have to factor into the whole thing. So there is a political element there that, you know, I'm going, obviously I would debate, you know, a total douchebag that's got over a million subscribers because my audience would greatly benefit from that. My channel would be greatly benefit from that. The exposure would be wonderful. Uh, so there's that going on. So I, I'm more than so someone who's got a really much smaller channel, I'm not going to benefit from them. They're not a mature person. But if there's a mature atheist, someone like Jim Majors, someone I like, um, someone I respect, I'm more than happy to debate them because I like to engage in those types of conversations. Now, with regards to if I'm going into one of these conversations with one of these, you know, person I know is not going to listen to me, I can think of like the Aaron Raw debate. Nothing yeah. I said was going to get through to him. Uh, you know, I knew that flat out. I'm going to do the exact opposite thing you saw in the recent presidential debate with Trump and Biden is I'm going to let him talk and so people can see how ridiculous he sounds. And it worked. He became a meme in a lot of ways. People started posting pictures of him. You know, I 20 years, that went around for a while. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes I, I, you just, you gotta let him expose themselves. Yeah, I, uh, I re-listened to that debate this morning uh, just because I found that such a uh, such like an interesting debate because it was so that that was whenever I like uh, it felt like he was putting on some sort of like uh, creative writing exposition or something like that you know like initially like you listen to his opening statement it's like he's well well written and articulate but it's like there's no substance there and so like and that was you know uh, and and like I, I was glad that it became so memed in some sense because it was like oh yeah okay like people are kind of self-aware, even the people who support him uh, recognize how silly he sounded in a lot of his you know, statements, like in the cross-examination and things like that, you know, were just 
really, really, really um, like funny to me. But also like whenever I sat down and watched that, I noticed that this morning uh, I was even, I was like uh, physically nervous, like watching that debate. And like, I'm not part of the debate. I get really nervous whenever I uh, debate and I've never debated anyone who's like really big or like even, you know, I've deba debated in like college classrooms, like in my ethics class and things like that. But I never have been in front of someone who, um, I don't know who, who, um, is either like well-versed in any kind of like, um, rhetoric, logic, um, argumentation skills or anything like that. Um, and so I guess my question is how were you, one worry, are, were you, or are you able to be calm during a debate? Uh, especially like for instance, that Aaron Ra one where it just kind of felt hostile in a lot of ways, obviously, because he, you know, had that one major outburst about his, you know, time or whatever, like, were there, well, like, yeah, I get very nervous before debates because mm -hmm. it's not, but I'm not nervous about facing the person ever. I'm nervous just to make sure I have all my facts, right? I'm nervous to make sure I've, I've done enough research. Is there something I forgot to look at that I could get caught off guard with? Uh, so like I always prepare for debates to the point where I end up only using 30% of what I prepared for. Like I had so much more prepared I could have used that I just didn't. And so when I'm in those debates, I'm not that nervous because I know that I have facts. They don't. I just have to stick to the facts and put it out there and the audience will see that. I mean, so, and that's what happened. I had atheists told me that I won that debate. Uh, I, I had atheists there that told me that I did really well and that I won the debate. I had one message after that debate that was kind of funny that argued I lost the debate because I relied too much on data and didn't, and I ignored my emotions. I didn't. Mm -hmm get the emotional aspect that Aaron was trying to get to and how people are hurt by religion. And I'm like, but I have the facts. He just has anecdotal nonsense. Like what, but I mean, you know, there's, there's nothing really to worry about that. So the, what I get nervous about is do I have all the data ready to go? Uh, but no, when dealing with people like that, you just got to let them, let the audience see what they really are. And the reasonable ones will notice there's nothing more you can do with that. You can't try to convince them. I never go into a debate to try to convince my opponent. That's one of Matt Dillahunty's tactics. See, mm -hmm. you go to debate, he'll just say, I'm not convinced. And then sometimes the Christians fall into it and try to convince him. Well, it's a, it's a waste of time. I'm going to try to convince the audience that this guy doesn't know what he's talking about and I have all the data. And people tend to see that and that's why a lot of people say I win debates really well or win debates a lot. I don't like using the term win debate because it's a debate, it's sure. not a sporting event, but you know, that's what people say it is. Uh, do you... Um... Do you find that like with that level of like, um, well, I guess I kind of have like two veins of like thought kind of sitting out there, but I'll go with the first one since it's more near to the issue. Um, whenever, uh, whenever you have of that like level of pr preparation for a debate where you're kind of anticipating all of the objections that might come and sort of all of the lines of reasoning your opponent might take and all, you know, you're kind of like trying to assess and predict you know, every possible thing or every possible claim you'll need to address or, you know, combat. Um, does that ever like uh, sort of distill down into like your personal conversations? Like um, let's say if you're having a conversation with, uh, I, I don't know, some, some guy at a bar and you're talking uh, kind of casually or whatever, do you ever kind of slip into that prepared statement debate mode um, and do you just like is that kind of always on hand or, or is it only kind of summoned at the beckon of like a major debate 
I mean, only if I really need it. Um, it you know, if, I, if I'm in a conversation with someone and they just say something ridiculous, like, well, Christmas is clearly a pagan holiday. I'm going to be like, no, it isn't. And here's why. Mm-hmm. So I, I sometimes I have that like built up and ready to go. But at the same time, it's, uh, I don't know. I'm trying also not to like ruin conversations. <laughs> so that, I try that, not that, to do that. That, that was uh, another question I had. Uh, do, you, do you frequently get people, I, I'm sure maybe it happens more now or maybe it doesn't, uh, but where like more people will just kind of come up to you and want to sort of have it out with you where like, you know, you're, you're just, maybe people in your community are starting to like recognize you and or no, whatever. It's like, that never happens. Of course, I don't go out that much either. So. Mm-hmm. Do you find that uh, like, you, you're on it like for me it's really hard whenever i'm ta- like uh talking with someone and they say something that's obviously false like uh but they kind of they're kind of joking or they're not like um they're not like looking for an argument uh, but i know that like i know they're they're predisposed beliefs you know so like i know what they believe and i know that they do believe what they were joking about right uh, but they're not looking for an argument um, and sometimes i frequently fall into like like sort of a like arguing with them about whatever it might be, you know, um, that they say offhandedly. Does that ever, I guess, do you ever get sort of trapped in that where you're kind of just like, it's really hard for you to just uh, let jokes be jokes and things like that? Or is it, are you like, kind no, of like, because it's, it, it's, it, it's not worth it half the time to try to convince people mm. like that or in that kind of situation. Cause it's not going to work. doesn't matter what I could say. They're not going to be convinced. So, you know, it, it, I, I, I'm, we're, I'm fortunate enough that I'm not like into, like I'm not a political pundit because that's mm-hmm. much, much more vitriolic. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you get into politics, you'll just dismiss things out of right and it's all based on fear, anger, and emotion right now, mm-hmm. it seems, from every side, every angle. So there, a little bit of that is in just about everyone's, you know, personal beliefs, regardless of what it is, even on something so simple like if Halloween or Christmas is a pagan holiday. And so if I try to convince them in that kind of setting, they're just going to get emotional and dismiss everything I say. So I just move on with my life. It's not, it's not worth the time or effort. Mm. Um, were there, I guess, were there any, um, let's see, you, you kind of focus a lot on uh, like science, uh, science philosophy, like uh, philosophy of science and uh, history and uh, like philosophy of religion kind of. Um, are there any, like, um, like if someone was kind of wanted to, like they saw your debate and they're like, oh, I really want to, I want to know what Michael knows. I want to, I want to kind of like, he seems to have a good understanding of all these things and he's able to integrate things that I previously thought were uh, in conflict, namely like science and faith or science and religion. Were, were there any, like, um, I guess, what would you say like uh, gateway books or gateway like things that you started to read watch uh, you know listen to uh, that kind of helped you sort of fall into the vein that you fell into with science religion and uh, history? you just got to read a lot I mean a good place to start is for Christians is philosophical foundations for a Christian worldview even though there's plenty in there I disagree with uh, that's a good gives you a good base of a lot of the different things in philosophy to and, some arguments for God's existence um, with science. I mean, there's so many areas you can cover. It's hard to really say there's just one mm-hmm. book to do it. I mean, depends on what subject. Mm. 
there's like for for me like i i typically don't uh i'm not very i guess like big into science in the general sense like um uh as far as like chemistry physics uh biology those types of areas um do you find that that's the most effective way to argue like um like or maybe maybe it's the most accepted way to sort of argue for god's existence or you know i guess like because you focus on those areas so much, is there any way, like, do I guess, do you value them over other methods, like other lines of argumentation or reasoning or things like that? I'm not sure what you mean. Like I, I'm more of a classical sure. apologist. I don't think pre-sup is a good way to argue. I disagree with a lot of things they say. I'm not sure what you're asking. Right. Well, I guess basically I'm asking, um, like, do you, do you like arguing using science, like chemistry, biology, physics more than like other types of um, like, uh, yeah, reasoning or whatever. it's probably because I'm a classical apologist. I'm not going to try to convince someone Jesus rose from the dead mm-hmm. if they don't even believe God exists. Right. Uh, it's pointless because they're going in their in their background knowledge. They don't even think that God exists. So there's no way they would uh, accept anything I have to say. So, I mean, they're just going to say, well, a naturalistic explanation is probably more likely because God doesn't exist. So if I can't convince them that God doesn't exist... I'm not going to try to argue for Christianity. Mm. Uh, so there's, I try to think of the, that background of stuff. Another thing I've recently discovered is I'm not debating atheists anymore on the resurrection. If they don't think Jesus was buried in the tomb. Mm. Uh, so if anyone wants to debate the resurrection with me, I'm going to say, okay, do you believe in, do you believe God exists? If the answer is no. I'm like, well, let's debate God's existence first. Okay. If they say, sure, I'm a deist. I'm like, okay, mm. do you think Jesus was buried in a tomb? If they say no, let's debate if Jesus was buried in a tomb. If you can't accept that, you're not going to accept the resurrection either. So I think about, you know, different like steps. Where are you at? I'm not going to say, well, you have to believe Jesus rose from the dead. If you can't even accept that he was actually placed in a tomb when the evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of that. So, uh, you know, that's kind of how I go. I'm, I'm a step mm-hmm. type apologist. If I can't mm-hmm. get you to step seven, uh, or if I can't get you, I'm not going to try to get you to step seven right away. I'm going to try to get you to step one step two then three then four then five you know that's my strategy no i am right there with you it's like one of those things um or i tried to go for the like the lowest point you know where it's like what 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 is the what is the like bait most base thing that we disagree on that pertains to the existence of god um and a lot of people uh, uh you know that i've known and like church settings and things like that always uh i guess took issue in some way with the way that I would go about those types of conversations. Uh, They felt that I was doing some sort of disservice by not beginning with, you know, the gospel of John and like, and I've talked, you know, I talked with a lot of like atheists and I used to live with, uh, live with them. They were my roommates, like all, you know, I mean, most, because I wasn't always a Christian, you know, so I became a Christian when I was 21. And so like every, everything prior to was, a religious basically, you know, or non-religious or, uh, or, uh, like new age spiritualist kind of thing, you know? And so it's like, uh, like if someone came to me and was like, it was hitting me with the Bible repeatedly and like trying to get me to accept it at that time in my life, there's no way that I would have ever, I would not have been very receptive to that, you know? So it's like, it seems almost natural to have a sort of a step like approach, um, and I guess maybe one of my, another question I have is sort of, um, do you find that you're like an anomaly or like in like general settings, uh, you know? So for instance, like 
um, like if I go to my church, there are very few people there that read the books that I read or, you know, listen to things I listen to kind of thing. And so like, is that, do you find that like you, this sort of similar thing happens to you where like you go to a place and like, if there's a hundred Christians there, maybe only two of them kind of like having the same conversations you have or think anything similar to the way you think, or do you find that like the, the, um, yeah, like, I mean, that's just the way people tend to be. Uh, the other day I was debating with someone on politics on Facebook and I, I gave them like a list of like reasons to support my position. And the list also contained reasons against my position. I'm like, maybe you should consider this to weigh facts. And they're like, I don't need that. I've already made up my mind. That's just how people are. It's really unfortunate that a lot of people are not really interested in that kind of stuff. And we also have to accept that all of us do that to a degree. We all uh, have beliefs that we want to be true and we try to find evidence to support them and we have to try to keep catching ourselves. And if you deny that about yourself, you're a liar. Uh, there's no really other way to put it. When I hear atheists say things like that, well, I would believe in Christianity if there was enough evidence. I'm like, you're a liar. That's mm -hmm. not how humans are. When you say that, I know you're lying because I've read the psychological studies. I've read numerous psychological studies and that's just not the way people are. You're not special. Like when my debate with Aaron Raw, he says, I'm not biased and you can test that. Yeah. Uh, okay, you're biased. <laughs> like if you're going to tell me you're like, I accept that I'm biased. I mean, there's a part of me that wants Christianity to be true. And there's also a part of me that says, you know, if I became an atheist, think about all the books I could write or, you know, popularity I'd get because now I'm on the other side and people would want to you know, know all about it. I mean, there's motivations all over the place. You cannot sit here and tell me that you're just this unbiased person that doesn't, that just follows the evidence. There's, there's no one like that. Mm. So, you know, that's the way people tend to be. They tend to get set in certain beliefs and they don't really want to change. Uh, in, terms, in terms of like... Um, questions though i think a lot of christians do have a lot of questions about problem of evil what divine hiddenness um evidence for god's existence how do we know the bible is reliable i mean people ask me that kind of stuff at church because they're, they're interested in that kind of stuff this idea that christians are all just no i believe on faith and i don't need that it's, it's ridiculous a lot of people are just busy i mean to be honest they don't have time to look into a lot of this stuff uh, but they do have those questions. And to sit here and tell me that Christians are not really interested in that kind of stuff is really, it's trying to resort Christians down to like this one-dimensional villain that you think they're just stupid and they don't care. But in reality, people are very, they're multidimensional in different ways. Sometimes they're busy, sometimes they don't care, sometimes they're interested, but they don't have time to look into it. Uh, you got to really, you know, you got to take people as, as multifaceted. Yeah, and that I, I'm I totally agree. It's one of those things. that's like um, it it whenever I if I talk with somebody and they they give me uh, like a portrayal as as if they were you know they never doubt they don't have any questions and like to to suggest anything contrary is heretical. It's one of those things that like I guess kind of gets under my skin uh, because like some of those things that like like um, like in my experience, I think the, the most difficult objection like that I've ever had like levied against me and that even for my own, like, uh, like, I guess, I don't know, you'd say like, even through my own journey is uh, a problem of evil or pain and suffering, you know, like that it's so, because it's so uh, human in some sense, you know, like it's so visceral, it's so emotive and that kind of thing. And so it's like, 
like whenever I, I used to try and bring this up and like ask really tough questions to people that I knew and like it would just it was always met um, unfavorably you know and it's like if in my opinion I think that if you don't take the problem of evil and pains uh, seriously it's like very hard to uh, it's it's hard for other people to in some sense take you seriously who aren't Christians I guess because it's like you're dismissing some major part potentially of their uh, of their story or whatever you know um, are there any like objections to God that you find that are just like really difficult for you to like think through or to argue around or like I guess what would you say the best argument against God is well I'd say the best one might be the problem of suffering, maybe animal suffering, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, those bothered me for a while. I do think there are, the more I think about it, I think there are logical and good explanations to get around that. Um, like my recent debate with Alex O'Connor, and I'm going to be doing a video on that probably in 2021, mm -hmm. eventually. Uh, so I don't, see a lot of the objections, I feel like when you first start looking at them, they, they, they seem difficult. But the more you look and the more you study them, the more problems you realize they have. Uh, so just take like the idea of atheism, for example. Like there's really no evidence for the position of atheism, as a lot of atheists will admit. They just say they're atheists because they're not convinced by enough evidence for God's existence. Okay. Oh, well then, you know, why don't you believe in God? Well, they'll go to things like the problem of evil or something. And I'm like, well, there's logical explanations to deal with those, reasonable explanations to deal with those. And so there's all this positive evidence for God. And the arguments against God's existence can easily be sorted out with just a little bit of data, a little bit of putting out some rational arguments. Um, it really doesn't feel like there's really that much to really leave a theistic position once you start really going into the data. And that's why a lot of the conversations I have with atheists just sort of devolve to, well, I'm not convinced. I don't really care if you're not convinced. I have all the evidence. I have, I, I, I will say this is the best inference is the most plausible explanation, the most probable explanation. And if you want to uh, say that I'm wrong, you got to give a better explanation that better explains the data. Just you personally not being convinced is not enough. So, I mean, the more I, I think I, I debate atheists, the more I bring the arguments up to them and deal with their objections, the, the less I am, uh, the less, the more, the more likely I am to feel like their position is just, you know, it, it's utter nonsense. So, Maybe that's, maybe that's a little harsh, but I mean, like if, if a lot of their arguments devolve to, well, I'm just not convinced there's sufficient evidence for God exists. I go, well, what does sufficient mean? Like, mm. I mean, what, what is, well, how do we measure that? How do we know what's sufficient? It's, it's a subjectively you just setting the standard. So I don't know. It, I just really feel like the more I study this, the more I get, the more I am convinced that the arguments against God's existence just devolve into a subjective subjective form of agnosticism and there's just nothing really for me to go on my, my challenge to atheists is always if you want to convince me that god doesn't exist or pull me into your camp at least make me an agnostic give me a better explanation for some of these arguments i present and they never ever do that mm. yeah i guess it's no wonder that so many like there are so many really really uh like a quote that comes to mind from C.S. Lewis where he says, uh, if you wish to remain a sound atheist, if a young man wishes to remain a sound atheist, he can't be too careful what he reads. And so it's like there's so many um, great theistic, deistic uh, philosophers that 
uh, throughout history that were, you know, that thought at least God or gods existed, you know? So it's like one of those positions uh, that I find like so, um, so difficult to hold when so many people have held contrary views, you know, throughout history and people that shaped the way we live today, you know, like, I think there's a big movement uh, towards this, like, what are they called? Uh, Christian atheists, you know, with like uh, uh, Douglas Murray. Uh, uh, there's a uh, Tom Holland and um, Slavo Zizek or something like that. But the, like a lot of them are calling themselves Christian atheists. Uh, in some sense, they they remind me of like another bit from C.S. Lewis where he talks about being pulled, kicking and screaming, the most reluctant convert in all of England uh, uh, into the kingdom of God. And um, in some sense, I feel like uh, though our societies are secularizing in some sense, like they're backtracking to towards this uh, secular Christianity. Uh, do you find any of those arguments for secular Christianity compelling? Like Christian, or like maybe like it would be like Christianity and water, like a lot of the core are you keep some of the teachings of Christianity, but you blow away all of the, you know, the liturgy, the the Bible, the uh, any of those like supernatural ideas, that kind of thing. Like, do you find any of that compelling? Well, I I feel like that's hard to maintain or or you know keep for a while. I mean, what's the point at some point? I mean, a lot of, I feel like if you start rejecting like the foundation you have in Christianity, you're just going to slowly devolve into relativism and postmodernism. Uh, this is a problem with a lot of uh, liberal Christians right now. Uh, progressive Christianity sort of came out, you know, a couple of decades ago and they were like, you know, we're just going to, we don't know if Jesus really rose from the dead. We don't know if he was born of a virgin. And those churches are suffering. People are leaving them in flocks. There's not as many as there used to be. It's because people realize, you know, what's the point anymore? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what's the point? Paul said this very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. So, no, I, I feel like when people try to do that, I'm going to be an atheist, but keep some of the good things of Christianity. Yeah, you might be okay, but in a couple generations, it's just going to devolve into relativism. There's nothing to maintain it. There's nothing to really – you've cut off the, the anchor. And you're just going to slowly float away from the foundation. So you really need those core central foundations to Christianity. Otherwise, it's going to slowly float away. And we see that happening now. We see that happening throughout society. When you start cutting off Christianity, society as a whole generates towards horrible things like relativism, postmodernism, critical race theory, and all these other horrible ideas that just cause society to devolve into chaos. So you need some sort of ontological foundation there. Before you can do, you know, your politics or your ethics, you got to do be able to do metaphysics. Mm. And without a strong ontological foundation, it, what's going to keep your ethics and your politics, your politics, and any other thing that stems from that grounded? Well, nothing. It's going to just keep devolving and floating away. And I know that people might accuse me of a slippery slope fallacy, but I'm making a probabilistic argument here. I'm not saying that's necessarily going to happen. I'm not going to I'm not giving a timeline where it's going to happen. I'm just saying that these tend to happen in societies that move away from some sort of ontological foundation like that. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, and I, I share like similar sentiments in the idea, or it's like, it's sort of, um, I had this conversation with um, Paul Vanderclay a week ago and he's like, uh, 
uh, he's kind of like uh, big into the, like the intellectual dark web with like um, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, uh, the Weinsteins and all, you know, those kinds of guys. And they're talking about this uh, idea, <clears throat> this idea of like the meaning crisis or something like that, where like, um, and I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on this, but something where it's like, um, as our societies become more secular, um, they lose their sense of purpose. Uh, with a lost sense of purpose, there are all sorts of consequences that come and uh, not any purpose will kind of do uh, because people aren't so easily duped by just sort of like, you know, you can lie to yourself for maybe a, a week, a month, a year, but you know, it's not always so easy and to lie to yourself for 50 years, you know, like, uh, especially because, you know, I think lies are corrosive, you know, like Dostoevsky says, like a man who lies to himself comes to a point where he can no longer discern truth within himself and thus gives himself over to coarse passions and desires, essentially like obliterates his life, you know? And so it's like, um, when you talk about the ontological grounding for, uh, for everything, essentially, like you have some sort of like a meta metaphysical beginning point or something like that. Um, I find that, you know, that's like, I agree with you. It's totally imperative, but and likewise, I get accused of slippery, slippery, slippery slope. Uh, whenever I bring up the idea that, uh, you know, the more secular become like all these bad things are going to happen, like namely like in the increase of like mental illnesses, such as depression, anxiety, and then like more and more people, especially under the age of 30 are dying by suicide. Um, yeah. And uh, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I would say that tends to be what happens. It's not going to happen for every atheist i mean there are christians that suffer from depression as well so it's mm -hmm. just like a a general trend where there are obviously going to be anomalies and counterexamples. i mean i see that all the time it's like this you know i remember someone giving me like a bunch of anecdotal evidence that these christians were depressed and i was like but that's not the argument that they're making mm -hmm. they're trying to say that these that tends to go that way the general population will go that way if you follow that way so you know that you know going to be careful making sure that we're just making like a generalistic type of argument there mm. yeah yeah and I, I don't mean to say like every atheist is going to be depressed and every you know every person who as a christian is not going to be depressed or suffer into any mental illnesses you know i'm a christian and i suffer from mental illness you know so it's like i'm of that counterexample population you know but in some sense like i think our society facilitates you know facilitates like um facilitates depressive moods uh, and uh well i guess that that it could just stop right there you know it's like in some sense mental illness has been romanticized and i wonder how much of that has to do with like the what would you call like the ontological shift maybe or you know like that shift from from uh like shift to secularism from like religious uh from like a religious point of view or whatever um and um, during your debate with Aaron Ra, like I, I really re-listened to it because I've been interested in uh, a lot of the examples that you used in there, uh, showing that there are benefits of intrinsic religiosity. Um, oh, and a ton. Or, a right, ton. yeah. And that, that's what I was kind of curious to hear about. So if you could talk more about that. Oh, yeah, there's a ton. I mean, 
one of the biggest benefits is that people with intrinsic religiosity have more self-control. Mm. That's people don't realize how important that is. You're less likely to act on your emotions. You're more likely, likely to think things through. You're less likely to start accusing people off the bat. You're more likely to evaluate situations better. And that can be far more important than just general analytical intelligence. Because you could think like in a situation where you have someone who's super intelligent, but they're acting on their emotions, they're going to cause a lot of problems. Emotion blinds intelligence. Maybe someone with a little bit of lower intelligence, maybe more self-control. Well, who do you think is going to come out on top eventually? Well, the person who's, who's taking their time and evaluating the situation. Intrinsic religiosity is extremely beneficial for self-control. Uh, it also helps uh, with um, reducing uh, psychotic tendencies. It helps mm. with people having more um, of the five big personality traits. So it makes people more extroverted. It makes people more uh, willing to be agreeable. Mm. Um, it makes people, you know, think things through and try to listen to either side more. I mean, there, it reduces suicide rates, uh, crime rates slightly, uh, drug and alcohol abuse. I mean, ironically, religion, it's funny because the narrative in the media seems to be the opposite, is that you, we have fulfilled with religious fanatics. But intrinsic religiosity tends to make, give people more self-control, more confidence in themselves, and less likely to act upon their emotions and do stupid things. Now, the reply I get from atheists, and you, I've seen this all over Twitter, is like, but Europe is so much happier mm. than America right now. They're, if you look at happiness rates across Europe, then they're also more atheists. Okay, I've seen people like Holy Kool-Aid make this argument recently, and I want to just like facepalm. It's such a stupid argument, and I can tell you why, and I can debunk all this quite easily. One, I'm not saying – I'm using this as like an analogy. I'm not accusing them of anything, so don't, don't – Oh, any atheist that's listening, don't jump on emotion here and run down mm. you know, my throat on this. But this is the exact same dumb argument you get from white supremacists. Oh, Europe is so much whiter than Africa. And Europe is so much happier. Well, I guess whiteness just makes people happy. It's a stupid argument. I mean, you would, that's an association fallacy. You're looking at two things that are just correlating and you're not actually deriving any causation from there. Another issue is a lot of European cultures are prone by their culture to say they are happy just because. Like you're expected to be happy. Mm -hmm. Go to Japan, you're expected to not say you're happy. You're expected to say, mm -hmm. I, because that would be too much, you're claiming too much honor for yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, why would you be so happy with other, all these other people around you? You've got to be more with what your current culture is. But if you go to uh, Europe, no, you're expected to be happy. So a lot of people say they're happy mm -hmm. without actually um, being happy. It's just, you know, it's like if you were to ask me, how you doing? I'd say, I'm supposed to say, I'm fine, doing okay. Mm -hmm. Even if I'm not, that's just expected to be because that's our culture. So that's also easily debunked. Um, and also, so the problem is it's correlation causation, not taking in cultural artifacts, which are going to affect those statistics. Mm. And they need to actually look at data that looks at atheists directly, that looks at intrinsic religiosity directly. They don't want to do that. They don't look at countrywide data and run wild with it. Mm. So it's easy to debunk that kind of stuff. Uh, and so again, when you actually get into the studies that people, the studies that focus on actual sample sizes, intrinsic religiosity increases overall well-being, overall happiness, overall overall self-control, overall agreeableness in, in every stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. So you got to really look at the studies, and a lot of these people they just don't, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm I totally agree, and it's interesting uh, that self-control bit. I think is really, really important. Um, I was listening to um, 
I guess there's sort of like a couple things there where it's like I was I was listening to the psychiatrist from Harvard talk about that, and he was talking about self control and like abil- uh, the ability to know whether you're lying to yourself or not, or whether your thoughts are being clouded by your emotion. And he pointed to, and this is like I I couldn't cite any studies or anything like this, um, so I'm kind of in one sense taking his word for it, but. Uh, he, he talked about uh, how self-control played a, a major um, factor in whether you would be able to know uh, whether you were thinking rationally, basically. And he talked about something and, and he gave sort of like this like cursory litmus test to know whether you were in control of yourself. And he said, you know, if there's something in your life that you like eating right now, could you give it up for 60 days without, without any, you know, like if you like, I like Reese's peanut butter cups. If I could just stop eating Reese's peanut butter cups for 60 days, uh, then that would be a good indication that I might be able, like that I have at least some levels of self-control in me. And, uh, and I think in some sense that's like, um, I've been like thinking of this, this, um, this idea of, uh, I've been reading this book called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis. And it's like, I don't know if you ever read that or not, but it's like a, it's like a hundred pages and it's essentially like a, um, it's like a common prayer book, sort of. It's like got meditative practices almost where it's like each chapter is different. So like the first one is uh, despising all, van- uh, all vain things. And then like the next one is uh, uh, having a humble opinion of yourself. The next one is prudence and action. And it just kind of goes down all these different uh, basically virtues uh, and you kind of, you read them and you meditate on them and that kind of thing. And it's, it's supposed to like, uh, it was written in like the 1400s by a group of monks. Uh, and then this guy, Thomas Kempis in like 1417 or something like that, assimilated it into one book. And, uh, and uh, the reason I talk about that is like a lot of it is about self-control and regulation and like, you know, not, uh, not like one of them is don't give, don't give yourself over to um, haughty desires. Don't, don't like puff yourself up and make yourself look better. Don't, do all these things, you know, and it's like, in some sense, it's almost impossible to see how that would be a bad thing. Um, like regulating yourself. Um, but more and more, uh, like the arguments are in favor of total liberation of the desires, you know, where it's like, you can, uh, uh, do whatever you want, whenever you want and however much you want to do it. Um, and I can't help but think that that will have like negative impact on society at large, you know, and then, and, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I don't know. I, I was going to ask a question, but if there's anything there that you wanted to respond to or had a thought on. Um, not right now. No, sounds good. I mean, I just have to look more into that because I'm not right with the work you were citing. Right. Um, and like I said, like I, I couldn't point to like specific, um, specific uh, like studies or anything like that. But one thing I have noted, like I'm in, uh, I'm studying to be a clinical psychologist. And um, one of the uh, things they talk about, like in regards to personality inventories, and this kind of goes to your idea of like being socialized to always say you're happy, um, uh, or to at least always like nod to like being better than you actually are. Uh, where they talk about personality tests, um, a lot of like the real serious ones that um, like, uh, oh, I can't think of the full name, but it's like the Neo, Neo something personality test. Basically, it just measures the big five. Uh, oh, the five big personalities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it runs on the five factor model, 
and yeah, like uh, agreeableness, extroversion, uh, neuroticism, mm -hmm. openness. And mm -hmm. What is the fifth one? Um, extroversion. Did you say extroversion? No. Extroversion, conscientiousness. Conscientiousness. I'm pretty yeah. sure intrinsic religiosity open actually slightly increases openness, but increases conscientiousness and agreeableness and extroversion and mm -hmm. is not correlated with neuroticism, which mm -hmm. is a great thing. I mean, you'd want that. And so intrinsic religiosity really helps with that. Right. It's like a lot of the virtues um, that, you know, for instance, like I like that idea of the imitation of Christ being like, I because I've been thinking a lot about like purpose and meaning and uh, sort of like, how can you, how can you sort of live a purpose at every moment of your life sort of thing? Like a lot of people feel aimless. So it's like, what exactly does it mean to live your purpose out? And then I think like there are two levels in which you activate your purpose. One was there's like a meta purpose or meta calling, which would be like the imitation of Christ. And then there's like a, a specific or an individual or particular purpose, which is like your vocation or whatever. And that specific or particular one is uh, reliant on your, the actualization of your skills and talents. Whereas the meta purpose can be accomplished by any person living, you know, like you can, you can always be uh, virtuous in that sense. You can always be humble. You can always, uh, you can always be uh, merciful, forgiving, uh, uh, loving, caring, etc. cetera. Uh, and so, um, Wow, where was I going originally? Oh, the, the so in this in uh, as far as personality test goes, like uh, a lot of the popularized ones, like Myers Briggs and uh, the Enneagram, those are they're not used in clinical settings uh, because like self-reporting, uh, like whenever you self-report on per, like on a personality test, it only tells you what you think you are, not what you actually are, you know. And so it's like if you if you come up to someone and it's like. Uh, someone's like saying, Oh, I'm happy. I'm happy. Uh, and it's like, but they're like, you know, they don't get out of bed for days at a time. Uh, they lack an appetite. They, I don't find things desirable that they once found desirable. Uh, you know, they like just things are, you know, just if you drill down into it, you really find they're reporting happiness, but in reality they're exhibiting, you know, major depressive symptoms, you know, and, uh, yeah, you got to be very careful with that kind of stuff. You know, mm. just say if someone says they're happy, doesn't mean they actually are. That's the problem with a lot of like the poll data coming out of Europe. Just because mm. someone says they are, doesn't mean they actually are. Mm. And you know, a lot of that stuff is really hard to measure because mm. um, you'd have to like get into medical reports, which are off limits most of the time uh, to the public. So where do you go? It's you know hard to measure that kind of stuff. Right, so this yeah. is why a lot of research actually like has people take certain tests. Where they mm. subtly met things without doing it like for example mm. the religious orientation scale mm. that's uh that reminds me of, there was a guy i don't know if you watch unbelievable with justin Brierley or if you've ever heard of anything mm -hmm. from him yeah he, he had a guy on there recently uh, i'd have to look to see his name but he, he 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 dabbles in that he developed this thing called the character course through the templeton foundation and he said uh essentially the worst thing you can do is ask somebody about uh, whether they're a Christian or not, or whether they're religious or not, you know, like that virtually, as far as the data goes, doesn't tell you much about their, you know, individual beliefs or the, the role religion plays in their uh, life. But he kind of, he uh, took a nod to this idea of like uh, uh, quest religion or uh, yeah, he called it quest religion. So it's quest like religion. Yeah. That's um, 
that's basically I'm spiritual but not religious. It's, mm. it's a third category added. Typically before that, it was intrinsic versus extrinsic religiosity. Mm. Intrinsic being like I'm a Christian because I want to know Jesus. That's basically what intrinsic means. Extrinsic is like I go to church because it's just part of my culture. Mm. Uh, you know, you could be an atheist and be extrinsically religious. And quest religion was added as another category. I think in the early 80s, maybe the late 70s exactly. I can't remember the exact date. But it was like for this new group of like, you know, almost like hippie-esque. Like mm. I'm a hippie. I just, I'm spiritual. I believe in certain spirits, but I'm not religious, you know, man, mm. come on. Okay. Yeah. So I, I wondered about that um, because uh, like typically I've looked yeah. at studies like uh, there's like the Gordon, the Allport study where they did a religiosity and prejudice and, uh, and like yeah. that, that metric. Meta-analysis. Of, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so yeah, quest. So to cover that quest was very mm-hmm. much negatively correlated with racism. Intrinsic religiosity was slightly negatively correlated with racism, but it was basically within a mar- margin of error. So it's basically meaningless. So it, it, mm-hmm. Extrinsic religiosity is what was correlated with increased levels of racism. And if you read the conclusion of that paper, they say we find no evidence that the promotion of Christian doctrine is correlated with racism at all mm-hmm. so if your quest intrinsic you're probably not going to be prejudiced or promoting racism if you're extrinsically religious you tend to be more racist and also the other thing about that is they note in the paper there's a declining effect that mm-hmm. if you were ex- extrinsically re- religious in the 70s you were likely to be more prejudiced than you are now if you're extrinsically religious so there's a declining effect and that's probably has to do more with correlation not necessarily mm-hmm. causation so culturally speaking, it's just a cultural artifact that is slowly going away. It's mm-hmm. not actually, it's only correlated with extrinsic religiosity. It's not actually, mm-hmm. there's no causal factor there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, that, and so that's, uh, that sort of brings an inter- interesting question to mind. And we're, we're about at an hour. So like, if you need to go or anything like that, um, but uh, otherwise we'll probably, you know, probably be ending uh, here shortly. So, um, but, uh, you know, <clears throat> you know, some people who would read that um, study on a cursory level might think, uh, you know, like if they, they literally, uh, you know, were picking lines from it or were presented with lines from it. They may come to believe that uh, religious uh, behavior, religious practices in general led to increased racism, you know, and how much I guess I really don't know how to formulate the question, but essentially like either how often uh, do you find people misusing data to support faulty premise or faulty conclusion? And then oh, like, all the time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And that, that's I something mean, I, I just, figured. I just mm-hmm. saw the other day, someone posted, um, was replying to me on Facebook and they were saying like, you know, liberals are more correlated with being intelligent. Conservatives are not. And I just was able to easily debunk that by pointing out, mm-hmm. okay, they're studying social conservatives, uh, not necessarily, you know, well-rounded conservatives uh they're not they're only looking at analytical intelligence they're not factoring all these other different types of intelligence into there uh there's a lot of limitations of these studies i went through them all i remember i think it was genetically modified skeptic did a video where he was like partnering with alex o'connor and they cited this ridiculous study that uh oh there there was a study done on children that showed that children of atheists are far more you know generous than those in Christian or Muslim families. What they didn't tell you is that that, that study was retracted. Mm. It, was, it was retracted. It, it, 
the conclusions were bunk. They, they, they made mathematical errors. It was pointed out to them and they retracted the study. So good on them for doing that. The problem is I still see atheists today citing that paper as if it's somehow valid or valuable and they are not familiar with the fact that it's been retracted. Another one is that recent meta-analysis showing that atheists are far more likely to be intelligent. It was a big meta-analysis. Hmm. And I did a whole video just going through the problems with that paper is that again, there's, they're, they're lumping all sorts of things together as religion. Like they're taking one study that just looked at fundamentalism or one study that just looked at quest religion. They're saying, oh, this is the same type of religion. Hmm. You can't do that. That's a horrible way to do that. Uh, there's, there's no evidence that intrinsic religiosity is negatively correlated with intelligence. Hmm. And they even made a mathematical error. They used the wrong um, coefficient. Um, I forget the exact term it's called, but they used the, mm -hmm. they used the exact, the wrong, um, they used Pearson's R, they should have used something called Spearman's Row mm. uh, to calculate that because their data was skewed and they don't tell you any of that. So there's numerous problems with that. In fact, someone on Twitter was mad at me and they said, well, how do you know you're more intelligent than the researchers? I'm like, well, I, did, I showed you, I showed you how to do the math. You can mm -hmm. actually go do it yourself and see the error they made. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that's something I've noticed a lot more now too, where I think, uh, especially with like social media, with like Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, uh, those kinds of platforms, uh, where it's like um, previously in previous generations, like if you wanted to spread uh, propaganda, you would put a poster on a wall or you would, you know, you know, do like a radio ad or something like that. Uh, but now like, I routinely will scroll on Facebook and I, you know, I may see two thirds of uh, what's being shared there is essentially propaganda for, you know, a lot of it's for uh, like um, uh, political uh, viewpoints like uh, socialism, communism, Marxism. Uh, I haven't seen anyone share anything favorite, like favorable of like Stalin or Lenin yet, but I'm sure we'll, we're only, we're not far away from that, I'm sure, but um, I've seen it. I mean, really? I've seen favorable stuff of Lenin. Um, I mm -hmm. see people defending some of Stalin. There's conspiracy theorists that Stalin, you know, was actually a great guy, and the, all the stuff we hear about him is just propaganda from the West. And it's like, mm -hmm. come on, mm -hmm. I mean, he should be on. He should be denounced at the same level as Hitler. Yeah, yeah. They're both the same level of just horrible, evil people, and yet people still venerate his grave. It's absurd. Yeah, I I wonder about that. Same thing with like uh, Mao Zedong, and uh, there are there are a lot of like genocidal figures in history that either people don't know about or uh, they're still um, honored. You know, uh, like uh, I'm reading a book on the rape of Nanking, and uh, and like I I've been asking people just you know offhandedly if they've ever heard of Nanking or what happened in Nanking and things like that. You know, it's like virtually nobody knows. About do you know that. who stopped the rape of Nanking? I do not. I've... Nazis. Oh, it was so bad. It was so horrible. The Nazis couldn't even stomach it. That's how bad it was. The, the Nazis were there and they were watching and they it went on for a couple of weeks and then they were like, yeah. okay, that's enough. All right. Well, we're genocidal maniacs, but we're not that bad. Yeah. It was something over the course of six weeks, they killed some 300,000 citizens of the city. And uh, that, that was more than uh, like England had suffered. And there were like, they were citizens, they weren't like soldiers, you know, so they're like, they weren't part of the, you know, they weren't fighting in the war or whatever. Oh, they, <clears throat> they didn't just do, they tortured them. Like, oh yeah. Was, 
Yeah, they was, mutilated, tortured them, buried some of them alive. I mean, did all sorts of horrible things. I mean, the ones that that survived were the ones who fled into the country and tried to like get away. I mean, I could not yeah. imagine having to live through something like that. I mean, if that was um, happening in my city, we would be in the car and just going into the desert. I mean, more likely to survive there. Yeah, yeah, seriously. And that's like one of those things where it's like, there's so much that people are unaware of in one sense, like, especially like I grew up uh, in public education uh, in, you know, an average place. I grew up in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. And uh, it's like very, like, most of the things that I'm learning now, well, a lot of it's self-taught and, but none of it was taught to me previously, you know? So it's like, I think that we're, we're setting up for uh, a generation that's far more susceptible to propaganda than any other generation previously. And with the advent of like cell phones and social media, <clears throat> there's, um, there's like a, a, more, uh, a more exact way to distribute this propaganda to people in like a more palatable way, more acceptable way and things like that. Where it's like, also have to know people are going to believe what they want as mm -hmm. much as atheists want to deny this. And some Christians too, Mm -hmm. people are going to believe what they want and we have to catch ourselves constantly. I mean, there was a researcher back in the nineties, her name was like Ziva Kunda. Mm -hmm. And she argued that, you know, to emote, what did I write here? She argued that to motivate, to she argues that people don't choose their beliefs, but they have motivations to believe certain things. And then they pick, and then they focus on the evidence that would support that subconsciously. They cried, they're doing this without thinking. So if somebody is like, it's like a Christian and they don't want to, or they want to be an atheist, they may start focusing on, this is just an example, mm-hmm. but they may start focusing on um, data that would support atheism. And then over the course of like two years, they're an atheist. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason is because they had underlying biases that they're, that they don't even know existed where they, they kind of wanted atheism to be true. And then they said, well, they just followed the evidence. Technically, yes and no. They did follow the evidence, but they did have underlying motivations there. And so there's a lot of research that sort of shows that's the way people kind of operate. You're just going to gravitate towards the evidence for the belief you want to be true. And you're going to gravitate away from the evidence you, what you don't want to be true. So yeah, you did follow the evidence, but I mean, it's a lot more complicated than a lot of people want to make it out to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find I, I would imagine a lot of people would be uncomfortable with that, especially the hyper rationalist types where they're like, oh, you know, look, I believe everything on the basis of evidence alone. And it's like, mm, you know, I, I just yeah. I, 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 I just failed to uh, fail to, you know, believe that basically. Yeah. Uh, and, and like a bit as we as Christians, we got to acknowledge it as well. We have to catch ourselves doing it. We have to acknowledge that we're doing it, try to fight it. We can't fall into this, the same problems and say that we're not doing it either. Well. Oh yeah, oh yeah, no, absolutely. It's one of those things. It's like, <clears throat> um, it's uh, it's like wearing your like, in some sense, like it reminds me of the practice that the monks used to do. <clears throat> the monks used to do where they would wear hair shirts underneath their clothes, and uh, like I'm I'm also reading a book on uh, Saint Francis of Assisi, who um, who like would do this basically he would wear um wear a hair shirt underneath his uh underneath his robes uh, just to always remain uncomfortable basically so that he would always basically re- be reminding himself that he's a pilgrim of the world and not a citizen in some sense you know and uh, 
And uh, in some sense, it's like creating a hair shirt of biases or something like that, where you always remember your, that, that uh, mental thorn in your side in some sense, where you're always aware that at any moment, uh, I may not be thinking rationally and it may be my uh, emotions or uh, uh, feelings that are sort of hijacked this process of, of thinking, you know, and it's like, it's important to recognize that exactly. I mean, exactly because a lot of unchristian things have happened because of not thinking about it, you know? Um, and uh, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so I don't know if you had any other thoughts or remarks or questions or anything like that. Um, but uh, I, I believe we were at our hour and uh, yeah, I think now is a good, you know, without starting up another line of conversation, I think now is probably a good time for us to, uh, to end it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so um, if you just want to let people know um, where they can find your work, uh, and where to follow you at. Yeah. Uh, inspiringphilosophy.org is my website, youtube.com slash inspiring philosophy. Uh, that's where I do most of my work and videos come out there every other week or, or every week. Okay. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you uh, coming on and talking with me and uh, I really enjoy the conversation and uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Will Work for Purpose podcast. If you liked what you, what you heard here, uh, you can find the podcast wherever major podcasts are found, as well as YouTube. So you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, uh, Stitcher, uh, etc. Wherever you listen to your podcast, you can find this podcast. If you want to support the work that I'm doing, uh, subscribing is a good way to help. Or you can check out the merch store, and the link for that will be in the description below. And you can buy this sweatshirt that I, I've been wearing, which is the anti-nihilism or the anti-meaninglessness sweatshirt. So thanks for watching. Leave your impressions of the show in the comments below or wherever you happen to be listening to this. And uh, if you want to be on the podcast yourself or want me to interview someone, you can contact me at mosley at tweakingo.com. And you can find the rest of my work at tweakingo.com. Again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next one.